Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. My name is Seru. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realized that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of The Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners, where there is a lot of bias in their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. India as a country is still developing, so we have a fast-growing consumer base. But as a culture, we don't consume as many clothes, so disposable culture is not here yet. So I think that's one of the reasons that it's hard to sometimes talk about the innovation here because the problem is coming from the West. It's Guardian Sporter Lavanya Garg there and we'll hear more from her later. Hello and thanks for joining us for We Need to Talk About. Today we're going to focus on the environmental and social impacts of our addiction to fast fashion, how the clothes we choose to wear are shaping the world and particularly what can be done about it, whether that's positive action driven by government, industry or by us as consumers. Our panel are ready to respond to your excellent Guardian supporter comments and questions. Thanks so much for getting involved. And in this episode, I'll also be stepping away from the panel a couple of times to put ideas they raise to Global Fashion Agenda, a leadership forum who work with brands and aim to create collaborative change in the industry. Sustainability is a business imperative, they say. We'll find out how that translates into action. I'm Lee Lendening, Executive Editor for Membership at The Guardian, and our panel today is... Mary Cray, Labour MP for Wakefield and the Chair of the House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee, the EAC. We'll discuss the EAC report, Fixing Fashion, Clothing, Consumption and Sustainability, which was informed by consultation with brands and retailers. 
Patrick Grant, British fashion designer, director of the Savile Row Taylor Norton & Sons and creative director of eTorts and Hammond & Co. Patrick is also the founder of Community Clothing, a social enterprise aiming to revive Britain's textile communities and you may well know him as a judge on the Great British Sewing Bee. And Lucy Siegel, journalist and broadcaster who focuses on environmental and social justice. Lucy wrote to die for Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? and produced The True Cost, a documentary on the fashion supply chain and the tragedy of the Rana Plaza catastrophe. She's also co-founder of the Green Carpet Challenge. Thank you all so much for being here. Let's start by clarifying what fast fashion is and outline its impact so we all know sort of what we're talking about from the beginning. Mary, perhaps you could start. Can you tell us about your definition of fast fashion? Lucy and Patrick are the industry experts, but for me, this is about the availability of clothing relative to our incomes. The true cost of fashion has come down massively over the last 30 years. And the way in which globalisation has changed the model of the fashion industry. So Wakefield uh, in West Yorkshire was a textile hub. We still have 800 people working in the Burberry factory there making excellent raincoats. But um, the days of, you know, Marks and Spencers means made in England or made in UK are over. And essentially, we have globalised supply chains, very fast turnarounds and an invisibility of the people who are making our clothes. So that model in- encourages an overconsumption and an underusing of our clothes, which is a problem. Yeah, so I mean, fast fashion is a is a rapid system of production and consumption around clothing. Um, it's it's close to fast food, fast tech, so they've all got something in common. And the characteristics are, as Mary described, offshoring. So uh, certain deals have been done. That, that we weren't necessarily privy to, um, uh, where we've swapped our textile production capacity, which we're very famous for in the UK, uh, in certain parts of the UK, we've swapped that for things like financial services. And uh, the jury is out as to whether that's been successful or not. Um, but what we, the upshot of it is a supply chain that snakes through some of the lowest wage economies on earth. I think Mary said the true cost of clothing has fallen. The true cost actually remains sky high, but the everyday price for consumers has fallen. So we've seen uh, one of the characteristics of fast fashion is clothing deflation over 20 years, which when you look at the pressures on the supply chain, which are caused often by environmental factors, because fashion is a full spectrum industry and uh, cotton farmers and all sorts of people are actually involved in the fashion industry. It's just that we don't really talk about them in those terms. So it's very susceptible to environmental vulnerability. Um, and that has squeezed prices even more. And yet this is still not being reflected in the price that you pay uh, uh, when you buy online or in a shop or whatever. So Just to crystallise that, fast fashion is a miracle for some because it allows trend-driven clothes at a very low price. And for many others, they smell a rat because the true cost is being externalised the entire time. And the true cost of fast fashion is being paid just somewhere else and by somebody else. I I think fast fashion began as a a rapidly turned round 
inexpensive facsimile of what was happening on the catwalk. But I think what it has morphed into over the last 20 or 30 years is actually just incredibly cheap, incredibly poor quality clothes that actually don't really have any bearing, I don't think, on on what is happening in the main fashion world at all. We have a system of production that is behind that that is incredibly murky, we know for a fact that, you know, there, are, there is enormous human cost, there is enormous environmental cost, and it has pushed a, a level of consumption in clothing which is just staggering and frankly slightly crazy. There is nothing else that we consume like we consume what we call fashion. It's got to a point where it is spiralling out of control. And over the last 40 or 50 years, we've gone from a system that was, you could buy good clothes on the high street, but you could buy fast fashion. And now fast fashion has sort of consumed everything and good clothes are being entirely squeezed out of our system. And we've got increasing pressure on price, always downwards and very, very rapidly downwards. The only way to meet those prices is to reduce the quality of the clothes that we are we are manufacturing. And we've got this race to the bottom by an entire industry that, frankly, I feel is going nowhere but down the toilet. I mean, it's, it feels to me like fashion is, is nearing a dead end and the only solution is to, is to squash what we've got and bring in something new. People like me who started writing about this in the noughties were used to one sort of fast fashion. We're now moving into a different zone, which is characterised by micro-influencers, social media and private label brands who don't really care where they're sourcing from. And in a way, we have even less accountability because we used to be able to trace some of the brands back to certain factories. This is a total free-for-all. And it's largely using synthetic fibres as well. One of the shocking things for me in writing our report was was going out to the Oxfam textile centre up in Batley, where they process, I think it's uh, 12,000 tonnes of end-of-life textiles. And what I saw was clothes with their labels still on that people had bought online, three for a tenner, two for a fiver. It's easier to throw it away than to to send it back to the shop because the postage outweighs the, the value of the garment. We are dealing with valueless items. But of course, as Lucy says, the environmental cost of those garments has already been paid by the, the huge quantities of water that have been used to produce them. I just want to say one thing about um, globalisation. I do think we need to look at how this industry has brought women into the workforce in places like Bangladesh. So, um, you know, 40 years ago, Bangladesh was a struggling country, a low-income country. Over that time, through women in the workforce, primarily in the garment industry, as, as becoming a garment hub, the um, women have been um, brought into cities. They have autonomy. They um, can earn a living. As a result, they are more independent. And the birth rate in Bangladesh has fallen from, I think it was 6.8 children, now down to about 2.3. So, what that shows us is that when women are part of a workforce, they'd spend their money on the same things that we spend their money on, which is healthcare for their children. Obviously, we don't have to worry about private health in the UK, education for their children, and they have fewer children because they can see them economically active in the workplace. Now, that's not to take away from the harsh working conditions, the burnout, the intensive work model, and of course, um, as Lucy mentioned, the Rana Plaza disaster. But there are learning points there about what companies can do when they are operating globally, how they can bring decent work, how how they can lift people out of absolute poverty. 
we are in a world where we need to feed more people, to have fewer children and women in the workplace, women in education is is one way of doing that. So I just wanted to kind of just maybe I'm a total contrarian on that. I don't think you can say that it's decent work as it is at the moment. This is the real issue because if you add into wage theft, which we've got really good statistics on, these women are being shortchanged in a in a sort of the most epic way. Actually, Indonesia seems to be the centre of wage theft. But their careers are so, so short because they're so considered so expendable. And in that time, some of the um, some of the modelling that's coming back is showing that they're being paid half, quarter of the wages that they should have got. So they're being shortchanged at every point and often left pretty destitute. There is a whole kind of piece of work that needs to be done to unravel this idea that these uh, fashion brands as they're operating at the moment are providing jobs in the system because the system is fundamentally flawed. I also think it's really important to remember that, that this whole industry has no history of stability and commitment to an area. I did a a TED talk last year and I talk a lot about the decline in jobs in the UK. Obviously, you know, Yorkshire and Lancashire where, you know, I spend a lot of time and have lived for a long time. You know, we've seen about close to a million and a half jobs disappear in this country over a 50, 60 year period. The industry moved to Hong Kong. The industry moved from Hong Kong to mainland China. It moved from one bit of mainland China to the next cheapest bit of mainland China. It has migrated around China. China is now too expensive. Chinese wages have gone up, what, 300% in 10 years? The industry has no loyalty. It will move to wherever it can it can do things cheapest because it is, a, it is at that end of it, it is an industry driven entirely by making money. And that, and that flight, that cut and run model is also pays into wage theft because that's actually part of that system. And that's part of the wage theft is when a company goes and just leaves without severance or without back pay or without any pay that's due. And unfortunately, that is how these low prices are achieved. We did a model for uh, the Circle, which is sort of offshoot of Oxfam. And we took evidence from lawyers in 13 textile hotspots on living wage. And we couldn't find one country or one brand mainstream brand that was paying living wage and after 10 years of so-called pilots that's a disgrace. While we're on the issue of globalisation I want to pick up on what governments can do and what industry driven action can do and what we can learn from countries around the world to sort of prevent some of these problems we've been discussing so let's hear now from um, three Guardian supporters um, talking for about three minutes uh, on the issue of accountability. Here's Demi, Pippa and Marianne. My name's Demi, I'm an Australian living in Berlin this cheap fashion becomes the norm for so many consumers and it's such a win for so many consumers. These businesses that are profiting off fast fashion at the moment, they're never going to be incentivized to change their model until their profit margins actually hurt. And if the consumers are still going to buy, that means the only way to actually drive change within these industries is having governments step in and actually put in regulations to make sure that these brands are actually paying their share of their social and natural capital. So making sure they're paying for any environmental damage or that they're obviously putting in the research and development or, you know, the social and the community capital to make sure they're paying people the right wages and investing in their staff, their health and safety and all that kind of thing. So other than voting in an election, is there any other way that we can spur change through the government level? My name is Pippa Ould and I'm from New Zealand, currently living in Melbourne, Australia. I've worked for several different fashion brands and the front that they put on to their customers through their marketing and social media and 
what information they choose to put on their website and what information they choose to leave out. They can sort of very easily create a sense that they are socially, ethically and environmentally responsible. But from the viewpoint of being behind the scenes, you see a lot of other stuff that perhaps isn't so great going on. Brands need to be able to step up and illustrate that they are taking positive steps that are going to have real and significant change in terms of ethical and environmental issues and not just be furthering endemic greenwashing, which is a huge issue in the industry at present. My name is Marianne Hughes. I'm based in Hong Kong and I'm the founder of a platform called No Data. We track the happiness and pay of factory workers in real time, which means we can, for the first time, show brands and factories how happier workers influences their bottom line, which is driving efficiency, productivity, but also protecting workers 24-7. So we give them a voice through our app, which allows them to complete surveys, but also report issues at any point and make sure they're getting paid fairly for their work. My question is, how do we help brands use the data and information that they're getting responsibly? Because we talk a lot about transparency and wanting to know what's happening. But then once we do hear those worker voices or we're aware of what's happening, how do we make sure that we respond to those voices in the best way? Say, for example, you discover a very serious issue like harassment in the workplace. It then becomes an issue of responsibility or fear for people around how do we just deal with this responsibly? And I'd like to really build a space which is collaborative, where we can generate a collective effort for brands and also wider industry to act on these issues and make sure that brands are dealing with them responsibly, but also that wider industry is on board and it's a collective effort. So let's start with Demi's question. If we keep buying cheap clothes, businesses aren't going to be incentivised to change their model. And is it up to governments to step in and and regulate in this area? One thing that stood out to me in the EAC uh, report, Mary, was this suggestion that the real onus is on the government to end this era of throwaway fashion and that one of the ways that that can be done is through a reform of taxation to reward companies that design with sustainability in mind. What's your experience of the hunger on a government level to actually do something about this? And is there um, interesting things happening in countries around the world in terms of government level intervention that we could learn from? I think there are things happening at the European Union level, um, which are going to affect our country over the next uh, couple of years. I know it's a very live debate at the moment. Each day brings new drama (laughs) on that department. We recommended in our report that there should be incentivisation for design for sustainability so that clothes can be easily taken apart, easily reworked and recycled. You don't get that if you have a ton of sequins stitched on, uh, little bits of plastic, uh, microplastics uh, chucked onto clothes, lots and lots of embroidery. The second thing is we recommended that the UK government should introduce extended producer responsibility. What does that mean? That means that you get the industry, you regulate, so the fashion industry, has to pay for the cost of cleaning up its own waste. It's based on the principle that the polluter pays and it's copying what has happened in France, which in my view is the sort of leading country possibly in the world on this type of uh, extended producer responsibility approach. So a penny on each garment would raise over £30 million a year. What that would do is help put a 
textile sorting centre um, in each of our big cities, each of the places where clothes are, are being collected and um, sorted and processed, and to create more um, back office functionality for charity shops who are left with these huge tons and tons of clothing that either can't you know, too out of fashion or just just can't be sold in their shops and to enable them to be recycled and reworked into the different grades of material that are going on for example in that badly recycling center that I talked about earlier now I know it's an end of pipe solution I know what Lucy Lucy's uh, gonna say on that but it's a <laughs> start <might> <laughs> but it's a start and it immediately will force behavior change because regulation is a very powerful signal industry is brilliant they'll find a way to to make a, a more circular economy what do you think, Patrick? I think there's a couple of really interesting points raised in, in this. I, I'm an enormous believer in the polluter plays principle. What we have is an industry, a fashion industry, that in the past had enormous stake local to its market. You know, we produced in the UK for what was sold in the UK. The textile mills of Lancashire and Yorkshire were deeply embedded in the communities in which they sat. They had long roots in those communities and they cared about not just the people, but they cared about the physical environment in which they were located. Now we have a fashion industry that, with very, very, very rare exceptions, has absolutely no connection, no financial stake or no you know, social stake in the production which it uses. It is completely distanced and therefore it can very happily turn a completely blind eye to what is happening on the other side of the world. I think the great problem with recycling is that New clothing is now far, far, far too cheap to make most recycling economically expedient. I have a customer at Norton & Sons who runs a big clothing recycling business. It is increasingly difficult for him to make any money doing that. A great amount of his clothing is bundled up and shipped off to West Africa because there is no UK market for it. The Eastern European market that used to exist for it is, is dwindling. And it's very difficult to disassemble clothing. It's very expensive to disassemble clothing. And to be perfectly honest, most of what you get out, you know, 70% of all of our clothing now is synthetic plastics. And those in their raw form are so cheap that, it, that really there is no value in, in recovering that fabric. The great sadness is that, you know, synthetic plastic clothing will last forever. It will not biodegrade. The planet does not have the organisms to deal with it. So it has no value as clothing, yet it will hang around forever. I obviously applaud what you are aiming to do there, but I think it has to be much, much simpler. I think we have to tax synthetic clothing heavily. Uh, there is always a very strong argument that, you know, people need to be able to afford clothing. But I don't believe that people need to be able to afford as much clothing as they currently consume. The average in this country is huge. We spend a little over £1,000 a year on clothing and we chuck away a little over 15 kilos of clothing a year. We don't need that much clothing. I think there should be a minimum price on clothing. I mean, I would be, I mean I've spent a bit of time trying to think about how it would happen. It's very, very complicated. But what the cheap end of clothing has done over the last 20 years is drag the whole thing down. My concern about a minimum price for clothes is that government needs to make policies that do not have a disproportionate impact on the poor. Yeah. And at a time when family budgets are being squeezed, where universal credit is being introduced and where families who are on universal credit are losing £200 a month out of their incomes... There is no government, left or right, that is going to say a minimum price for clothing. Where I agree with you is that the 
incentivization to use recycled fabrics um, should come from domestic policy. Because if you create a market for recycled polyester clothing in this country, you get the capital investment, you get the big plastics producers coming to charity shops saying, we'll take all your polyester, we need it as our feedstock. And you but create a virtuous cycle. But that's not the stuff they're going to use. I mean, with, with the, then, you know, it is much, much, much too expensive to recycle plastic clothes into new plastic clothes. So what they are doing is taking plastic bottles which we can easily collect out of our oceans and turning them into small bits of ultimately incredibly dispersed microplastics, which we actually can never get back out of the sea. So I think, I think we just have to find a way to stop using plastics in clothing altogether. Agreed, I'm afraid. I totally agree. I think the life cycle analysis, the true life cycle analysis, which is emerging. So we've used life cycle analysis to do a lot of comparisons, particularly between cotton and polyester. That's the classic analysis that we do. And what that has made us do is set the bar really low because cotton is so polluting and so damaging. So polyester always comes out on top traditionally in these in the in this sort of analysis. What we haven't factored in because it's an emerging science and emerging evidence base is the catastrophe of microfibers, tiny, tiny bits of plastic, which unfortunately can be dispersed just in general usage and laundry cycles. And they are an emerging catastrophe. So what we're having to do, and some indices are going back and already doing this, is recalibrating all life cycle analysis. And once you do that, polyester is looking like really, really bad idea. I mean, there's so many things to say here. (laughs) I, I could be incredibly diffuse. So for me, one of the interesting things that Demi asks, really, or or, or sort of this assumption that fast fashion is a win for consumers, and certainly it can look like that. And what's an interesting question for me, having banged on about this for years and years and years, if all consumers turn around and say to me, we like this, find a way to work with it, find a way to make it less impactful, then you know what, that's a really, really good point. And I think Mary's report pushes up against her mandate everywhere. I know what she's like. She pushes she pushes as far as she can. And as she's just said herself, you know, there is no government in the world that's going to set a minimum price for clothing because what we do, just to be kind of meta about this for a minute, is we come up against the four-year political cycle and the, the cycle of, of uh, nation states and governments comes up against regulating for the biosphere and the two things are completely incompatible. But, you know, as a campaigner, I have to take an overview and I have to look at microfibers and microplastics and I have to say for me that is such a potential catastrophe that for me that changes everything. It's not a popular view necessarily. Uh, I don't know how we're going to get around the fact that we are now polyester is the dominant fibre, but there are some major inconsistencies. I didn't want to bang on about fibre, but hello, here we are. (laughs) Go on. Let's look. Yeah, let's look at the way. Let's just take the recycling infrastructure at the moment in the UK, which I know is something that's been hotly debated. So 90% of the cost of recycling plastic at the moment, the stuff that we can get back, is borne by the citizen. Okay, only 10% by the manufacturers who are pushing all of this volume out. We are then, as Patrick rightly says, what is being recycled largely goes into polyester. And that creates a cheap fibre, again, for the fashion brands. So they're sort of winning twice and I'm paying twice. And not my children because I don't have any, but other people's children will be paying the cost for generations and generations. We now know 
unequivocally that microfibers, microplastics are a really bad idea. They transport uh, uh, chemicals like DDT that we haven't seen, that we've managed to eradicate from, from earth systems and now traveling through the water. And they're they in our gut. They're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. This is the thing that we need to take the stand on. And unfortunately, in a real politic way of looking at the fashion industry, making it more sustainable and trying to please everybody, we are going to exacerbate the problems for the environment, which are very, very real for the biosphere. Because when you look at polyester and you look at limited life cycle analysis, you are intensifying the ecological pressures on, the, on certain systems and they're the systems that are most under threat. Back to Patrick's point about um, recycling. I mean, it is an end of pipe solution, etc. How do we do this? And I don't think it's about making consumers pay more. I think it's about structural change in the industry. So Pippa's stuff about endemic greenwashing. In our inquiry, we had the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan from RAP. And we were talking about this and we, we, did an, we wrote out to all the top 10 retailers online and on the high street physically. And we said, what are you doing on various social environmental things? How many of you are involved in Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, which is run by RAP, the Waste and Resources uh, Action Programme? And just 10 high street retailers are involved in that. Now, for me, that's the prize because that gets us into the biosphere. It says, what are you doing to cut your carbon? What are you doing to cut your waste? And what are you doing to cut your water? And how are you going to get to it? If the scientists are telling us, as they are, we have 12 years to tackle carbon and waste and create a circular economy and get to net zero emissions by 2050, governments internationally need to be legislating around carbon. Carbon is the big climate problem. And all of the other issues will be exacerbated. Poverty, hunger will be exacerbated if there's a two degree world rather than one one and a half degree world. So when I see only 10 UK retailers can be bothered to, to calculate their carbon and their emissions, almost nobody is doing anything on waste because of the increasing volumes that they're doing. They're doing bits and pieces on water. I want to say to them, hang on a minute, how do we tax carbon or how do we price carbon so that the price of the externalities that Lucy's talking about, how do we price biodiversity? How do we prioritise uh, fresh drinking water for 2 billion people in the Pakistan, India, Ganges Delta? If we price those things fairly, then we'll have the true cost of clothes. We'll return to our panel shortly. It's interesting to consider the role of governments in making change. In the period between recording this podcast and bringing it to you, the government responded to the Environmental Audit Committee's report. Many reported that the government had rejected all of the committee's recommendations, but the government said this simply wasn't true and that they're tackling the environmental impacts of fast fashion and stated that much of what the committee would like to achieve is already covered by government policy. They point to consultations that would make producers responsible for the full cost of managing and disposing of their products after they're no longer useful. Governments can and do get involved, but much of the responsibility still lies with the industry itself. I wanted to put some of the wider issues discussed by our panel to the Global Fashion Agenda, a leadership forum pushing for industry collaboration on sustainability in fashion. We'll call them GFA. At the Copenhagen Fashion Summit in 2017 that GFA organised, they called on the industry to accelerate the transition to a circular fashion system by signing a commitment to take action by 2020. 
That means fashion that's designed in a way that it mustn't go to waste at the end of its life cycle, with an emphasis on the quality and longevity of each item. By June 2018, the commitment had been signed by 94 companies. That's 12.5% of the global fashion market. I spoke to Jonas Ida Hansen, Public Affairs Director at Global Fashion Agenda, and the man who led this 2020 commitment. So Jonas, it takes time to change such a large industry. And according to a 2018 report by McKinsey and Company, if trends continue, the fashion industry could account for a quarter of the world's carbon budget by 2050. So clearly we don't have the luxury of time. Um, The 2020 commitment you've asked for sounds like a positive step, but how are you going to ensure that change happens quickly and in a meaningful way? Yeah, we've set a limited time frame for the 2020 commitment in terms of 2020. So that literally gave us around three years to work with companies to uh, reach the targets they set. Um, is that fast enough? Probably not, right? Because we've read those reports that you're mentioning. But of course, I mean, as you said, this is a huge industry and it's thriving in terms of growth in financial terms. Still, there are a number of companies' percentage of the industry that hasn't really realized that we're working in triple bottom lines and not only thinking about the financial bottom line. What we wanted to achieve with the 2020 commitment, it's really to give a a gentle push to the industry to really get started. And hopefully the industry would then recognize the opportunities that lie in the circular economy. And at the same time, of course, we have a a big following, right? So we, we can also do a lot to mobilize the industry Right. And it's up to the individual companies that sign up to the 2020 commitment to set their own strategy and ambition level. Does this risk companies claiming their green credentials by saying they're part of the 2020 commitment, but they're not actually making a great deal of positive change, do you think? We've done as much as we can, at least, to vet the process in terms of at least the claims that are made. Of course, it's it's about self-implementation and self-assessment, but we saw the urgent need to take immediate action on this to use our rallying power. We as an entity, can, can we act as a third-party vetting organization uh, for such a large crowd? I don't think we would be the right ones to do that. But we did do is we asked, of course, all of the signatories to also report back on progress. And if they don't, we would indicate that in the, in the status report. So that's a, some kind of a public vetting process right. that we believe in. Um, still, of course, yes, there are risks in this. And we believe in taking action rather than waiting too long time to set up maybe the, all the right elements of control, making it a bureaucratic or difficult setup that would maybe also leave some of the smaller ones out of the equation, some of the smaller signatories that we have. The encouragement for these companies to start taking baby steps in this direction and really also narrowing it down to only four action points. There are many more areas as part of the circular economy. In the Environmental Audit Committee's recent report called Fixing Fashion, Clothing, Consumption and Sustainability, they found that only 10 UK brands had signed up for RAP's Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, where RAP calculates the brand's carbon, water and waste impact and then supports them to reduce that. That could suggest that there isn't the will amongst a sufficient number of fashion brands to face up to their 
impact. Do you feel that government legislation or making all brands accountable to equivalent standards, perhaps using polluter pays principle, is that an effective way to force brands to take responsibility, do you think? I think using RAP as an example of the sustainable action plan, I mean, that's that's one government initiative, right? There are numerous other government initiatives out there that might have increased traction amongst companies. Certainly, we do need government action and collaboration between governments and the industry. I still think it's a bit too early, at least from our perspective, to say what exact policy instruments are needed to create the right framework. But we see the commitment to our 2020 commitment from companies and the, the commitment from companies signing up to, for example, El MacArthur Foundation's Make Fashion Circular initiative, that the companies are ready to engage and have started to see the opportunities within circular economy. But it's true. In order to make this like a true transition, we need governments to support regarding getting the infrastructure up and running, scaling investments, access to funding. That's where you know, government action can really support and, and help create the right framework. We'll hear more from Jonas later. You're listening to We Need to Talk About, the impact of our fashion addiction. In the second half, our panel discuss brands' awareness of their supply chains and greenwashing. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is We Need to Talk About the Impact of Our Fashion Addiction. More from our panel, Mary Cray, Patrick Grant, and here's Lucy Siegel. If you look in Bangladesh, there's a lot of uh, problems at the moment. So the Bangladesh Apparel Exporters Association, where people have put money into factories to get them up to scratch and now don't feel that they can they can claw that money back. They're trying to raise the price point on, and the product that they make in Bangladesh. They don't want to be a low wage, a low price point apparel producer. But it's very hard to push up the scale. And that all comes down to the fact that we have these companies, these brands that refuse to pay a proper cost price for the product that they are buying because they will have their margin. None of these systems have managed to disgorge any of the money along the supply chain where it should go. It's all going up to the what we might call the fashion moguls. The minimum price should be on buying, surely. Like they shouldn't be able to drop the price. And any time one big brand gets into trouble anywhere else, whether it be their retail property portfolio or whatever, what they do is squeeze the producers in Bangladesh. And that creates so much, so much havoc. So that's where I think a little bit of legislation could, could come into 
to play. And there are ways of doing that. It's incredibly complicated. And as Mary says, it's not a really good time to talk about EU policy and our place within that. But general system of preferences, trade law, that's where we have found some ability to manoeuvre, especially with regard to living wage. It requires a lot of lawyers and a lot of time and a lot of attention. And it's not very interesting for consumers. I think there are certain things we need to do. And I think, again, I think technology can help us do this. And it's already starting to happen. Young people are starting to fall in love with buying secondhand and mm. trading their clothes and, 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 and in a meaningful way. How can you feel any joy or feel any pride in wearing the clothes that most of the people are selling to us? You know, this is, this is stuff that is joyless, valueless. Really, really awful. And we used to really value the clothing that we wore. And we used to really value the people that made them. And, you know, your constituents, West Yorkshire and Lancashire, as I said before, you know, there were probably a million and a half jobs. Those industries were central to the civic pride. They were central to personal pride. They bound communities together. They created shared identities. They did so much for the communities in which they were placed. And we've sort of lost all of that. I want to just move on to Marianne's point. Marianne is using big data to track the happiness of workers. And I think that's really interesting because for me, the best guarantor of decent pay and conditions is a trade union. I'm from the labour movement. And the way that employers hear the voices of their workers without marginalising them and silencing them is to have a strong trade union and we had the, the the brands in front of us the industrial is the international garment workers union and they are active in all of these countries trying to stop trade unions being beaten up and bullied by the factory owners and we asked as part of our our survey that we sent out who recognizes trade unions the only british company that is involved at the very highest level and that wants unions across its organization is asos and there was a lot of talk from the other brands about, oh, yeah, we got involved at the slightly lower level. Marks and Spencers doesn't recognise trade unions here in the UK. Are we expecting Marks and Spencers globally to recognise trade unions? No, because the ethos is we're a paternalistic firm. You'll be fine if you work for us. Not really our core business. So as consumers, does your fashion house recognise trade unions? Yes or no? Is it serious about cutting its carbon waste and water? Yes or no? You know, is it involved in the global discussions about limiting its environmental impact? And it's patchy at best. So you find some people are good at environmental, not so good at social. The modern slavery statements, every company in this country is mandated by law to say what they're doing to tackle modern slavery. Has the boss checked um, that there's no modern slavery in the supply chain? One way that you can find out whether your brand is involved in this is to, well, first of all, look at um, the parliament.uk website and look at the companies that we surveyed and get a flavour of the initiatives that they're involved in, to get a flavour about whether they're involved in the ethical trading initiatives, whether they're sharing information about abusive suppliers, because transparency is the only way that we stamp out the bad, the malpractice and we encourage the good. Marks and Spencer responded to the question of whether Marks and Spencer recognised trade unions in the UK by saying, Every colleague is free to join a trade union, but we do not have a recognised trade union at MS in the UK. We are committed to direct employee engagement and participation through a network of business involvement groups, BIG, consisting of over 3,000 elected employee representatives. 
BIG represent all UK colleagues. Every store, office and distribution centre have a BIG and our national BIG representatives regularly meet with our CEO and other members of our senior management team. When asked if Marks & Spencer recognised trade unions across their clothing supply chain, they told us that in their clothing supply chain they have a very clear set of global sourcing principles. Within these principles, they say that workers have the right to join or form trade unions of their own choosing and to bargain collectively without prior authorisation from suppliers' management, according to national law. Suppliers must not interfere with, obstruct or prevent such legitimate activities and that suppliers must adopt an open attitude towards worker representation and the activities of trade unions. Marks & Spencer also state that they put on their global supplier map where a factory has a workers' committee or union. Pippa mentioned greenwashing, and greenwashing, I think, is utterly rampant and completely out of control. It is very, very easy for a very, very big company to spend what seems like quite a large amount of money and pull together quite a large team of people to do very, very good things. I had dinner with the chairman of of, uh, H&M. They have a fantastic program full of really talented people. They're, you know, some of those people within that company know more about sustainable practices than, you know, than anyone else you might find on earth. And because the UK press needs the money that is paid to them by the fashion brands and advertising, they will tell you the story of the green credentials of all of these companies in a, in a way that feels very, very compelling. But it is a small, small percentage of what they do. And it is becoming absolutely, almost everybody now is a sustainable or an ethical brand. But the truth is, almost none of them are. I think well, H&M do, meaningless. I think H&M are trying to do good things. They are and trying if to. If you cross-reference the Fashion Revolution sort of index about how they treat their workers, and each year Fashion Revolution asks the brands how they treat their workers and then ranks them, and that's an independent charity. H&M are trying to get to sustainable cotton by 2020. Now, you know, how much of that is organic, how much of it is recycled, but they are creating those recycling points uh, in their own stores. They've been doing it since 2013 uh, you know top shop contrast 1500 stores across the arcadia group one collection point at oxford circus not good enough I think that this shows us how complicated this is (laughs) and deliberately complex as well. So I have an absolute hatred of transparency indices because this is where brands are supplying information based on how much they pay for their sustainability departments. And I agree that some of them have very good people working there. But the system is broken. They're not addressing volume. They're not addressing pressure. Their whole business model is predicated on volume and bringing out more and more volume each year. So I'm not surprised that some brands have more uh, collection points because they also have behind the scenes, they have incinerators, which they (laughs) have contracts with. So, you know, it's still better than going to landfill, though, digging a hole and chucking clothes in. Do you know what? You're right. It is. It makes a lot more sense, but it has absolutely zero consumer or citizen approval. This is another thing, and this goes back to this sort of point about mandate. You know, if we all said, actually, you know what, I really like fast fashion, don't care that future generations will pay for it, don't care that people are enslaved, don't care that there's some problems with it, I think it really is good. Then the natural next step from that to to dispose of your fast relics, because clothing is durable and we can't... Fashion isn't. Yeah, yeah. 
it would be just to incinerate the lot of it. And then actually it would solve a lot of our problems, especially with microplastics. We'd have a big, a big problem with air quality and we'd have a big problem with carbon still, but it would solve a lot of problems. But that is not the way that we go because that way really is the kind of end of civilization. But so what we're left with is a really, really destructive, complex and counterintuitive hybrid of all these different mixes. And meanwhile, the brands are messaging their sustainability credentials like fury. And the transparency indices have become a really good mechanism for their messaging. I think they're like a massive green fig leaf. How the average consumer is supposed to navigate these things is really unclear to me because it is not clear how much information they're withholding. If I give you 5% of information about, you know, what I did last week, what do you know about the other 95%? It's it's a real problem. And I think NYU did a study, a literature review, if you like, of information and data on fast fashion. And they found that something like 90% had been supplied by the brands themselves. So this is a phrase that I've heard Mary use, which I think is good. You might have got it from me, I might have got it from you. They're marking their own homework. It is impossible for those businesses, no matter how big they are, to understand their supply chain in in its entirety. It is too murky. It's just, this is the era of big data. It's about audit, it's about blockchain, it's about big data. They can do this stuff. It is possible. They don't want to and they don't want to invest because there's an incentivization down the supply chain to sort of turn a bit of a blind eye and don't ask, don't tell. And that's a so problem. There, so there we go back to regulation. And if you had like a GSP, like some trade law, and you couldn't get your accreditation unless you'd invested in blockchain, there we have an alliance of how we how we might legislate and find a way into mandating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's there are companies here in the UK that work with, with companies on their supply chain chain where they literally mandate every item, every button, every zip, that go, every label yeah. that goes into the gar- garment. We, we work with one. And, yeah, and it's probably but, the same person. Yeah. And, and that helps reduce costs as well because you have full transparency. But it's okay for us to do it. We do it for, you know, we're, we're, we're moving towards it for community clothing, but we have an incredibly short supply chain. You know, all of our manufacturers are in the UK. Most of our material suppliers are in the UK. And we don't move from supplier to supplier season after season to try and find cheaper and cheaper solutions. We have a long-term partnerships with all of our suppliers, which makes it very easy for us to do all of that because it's just the same people we worked with last year. So we do it once and we don't have to do it again. When your system is constantly shifting, it is almost impossible well, to and, keep track. And also most brands would sooner die than have anywhere approaching full transparency. So what they do is they've had this dance with sustainable and very well-meaning agencies and campaign groups for many, many years where we're all kind of in this together trying to find a way that they can have full transparency Business when one usual. party has no interest in full transparency. So then that that is the big greenwash, the big hoax that's been perpetrated. And I'm afraid that the brands have infiltrated the sustainable fashion movement in the UK to a degree now that it's kind of game over. We put some of the specific points about brands to their representatives. H&M responded to comments that their promotion of their green credentials may be seen as greenwashing if their entire supply chain or stock could not be considered green and ethical by saying... We've been communicating with our customers about our sustainability work for a very long time and while we get criticised for this, we believe we have a responsibility to share this information with our consumers 
hence the new transparency layer on hm.com, which allows customers to view information about the country and specific factory that a particular garment was made in, how many workers are employed by that factory, and the sustainability credentials of the materials used to make it. We know that we still have a long way to go in terms of fulfilling our sustainability ambitions, but we believe we have a duty to let our customers know where we are with our sustainability work. H&M also pointed towards their 2018 sustainability report, where they say they documented the progress against the stretching sustainability goals they've set themselves. They say their goal is to use their size and scale for good, and with the help of technology and innovation, to lead the change towards circular and renewable fashion while being a fair and equal company. On the issue of what happens to the clothes they put in their in-store collection points, H&M told us... About 50 to 60% of the textiles are sorted for re-wear or reuse. Wearable pieces are kept in their current condition and marketed as second-hand garments. Some are even used to create new products in both regular and special collections for H&M Group brands. About 35 to 45% of the textiles are recycled to become products for other industries or made into new textile fibres. The remaining 3 to 7% that can't be reused or recycled are used as combustibles for energy production. Sending textiles to landfill is not an option. The Guardian asked Topshop why there aren't more clothing collection points for recycling cotton, but they didn't respond. When we asked Marks & Spencer why, as a Heritage UK brand, they don't produce in the UK anymore, Marks & Spencer said... At M&S, we're committed to offering our customers great style and value. To do this, we need to manufacture in a wide range of countries. This includes the UK, where we manufacture furniture, including sofas, cookware and 40% of our beauty range. And they told us that they work hard to support British industry. For example, the cotton for their made-to-measure shirts is spun in Manchester. Let's return for a moment to Jonas Ida Hansen, Public Affairs Director at Global Fashion Agenda, to pick up on some of these points. One of the things that um, came up in our discussion was a lack of supply chain knowledge. And how much in your experience do brands really know about what's actually going on? I guess the the obvious uh, answer has depends, right? Depends on the size of the companies. In, in the 2020 commitment, we, we have signatories who work through agents of suppliers, right? So they don't, they're not even in touch with their first tier supplier because it goes through agents. Traceability is a true catalyst for this evolution that we're talking about moving from a linear to a circular business model. We at Global Fashion Agenda recommend to at least trace into tier one and tier two manufacturers. So it's really sort of cut and sew as the tier one and wet processing as tier two. Many big brands have visibility all the way actually to the cotton farm even or the cattle range. But we also need to take it step by step, right? So that's our recommendation to really sort of have a focus on tier one and two to begin with, but it doesn't stop there. It's obviously very attractive now for a brand to be seen as green and ethical, and you can see how that would be good for business. But what do you consider to be greenwashing and and what do you think are truly green credentials? It's true. We have claims out there of circular businesses because they are engaging in post-consumer uh, waste, you know, cutoffs or ocean plastic waste being turned into new products, you know, old fishing nets, recycled pet bottles. It's all great, fine, but we don't see that as greenwashing, whereas some others might see that as greenwashing. We see that as a great building block 
on the learning curve towards further circularity. What we don't want, of course, is that companies then don't learn and, and develop from you know, seeing circularity maybe only as recycling. And we also do not want companies to use the circularity buzzword as an excuse for just keeping producing as nothing else was happening. I would still want companies to go in the direction of circularity, maybe not knowing that they've only taken a, I don't know, 1% step in the right direction, but still having smelled the benefits of going circular because there are so much to learn once you've taken those first steps. And we can see from also the, the companies that we engage with in, in the 2020 commitment, even though they've set ambitious targets, they find out after one or two years that they can be even more ambitious within their existing targets, or they can even set new targets because what they've just invested in actually made them aware of completely new ways of thinking business. Let's return now to our panel and the last of our Guardian supporters in this episode, Gauri Sharma and Lavanya Garg, who work with garment factories in India and who spoke to us on worker well-being and sustainability. They founded an online and offline community for people working in sustainable fashion in India. Hi, I'm Gauri Sharma and I'm based out of New Delhi in India. I'm the co-founder of SAS, which is Sustainable Style Speak, India's first sustainable fashion community. Garment workers are often characterized in a homogeneous way in one kind of black box of people. But actually, when you meet these female garment workers, they are some of the most resilient, independent uh, women that you'll ever meet. And actually, they uh, are role models for people like us because they are at times fighting against their families and society to come to work every day. They are at times the sole breadwinners of their families. They're going through a lot uh, in their personal lives. And of course, I acknowledge that there are challenges in the garment industry. It's nowhere near perfect. But there's a whole other side to the industry and a whole other side to these people that never really gets featured uh, in the mainstream media. And I would really like to see more of that. My name is Lavanya Garg. I am the co-founder of SAS. My comment and rather question was around this idea that India is the place where clothes are made. And India is also a fast-growing consumer nation. So it is the place which is ripe for a lot of innovation to happen. However, a lot of innovation is not happening here yet. And that's in two sort of broad buckets. One is around worker well-being. So a lot of brands that source from factories in India or even in other countries like Bangladesh, China or Vietnam, they design worker well-being programs for women in factories. But these programs often are not designed keeping the local context in mind. And the people I think who would be best to design these programs are the people who are actually on the ground. So factory owners, sustainability professionals, people who are at NGOs who are working on the ground so that they also understand the cultural context and the need of the workers without actually imposing a program on the workers. So that is one bucket. And the other bucket is that in general, there is a lot of sustainability innovation happening on the environmental side as well. For example, one of our community members runs the world's first clothes swapping app, right? Or there is another community member that's working with very interesting bio-based materials like banana fiber, milk fiber. But because there aren't hubs of innovation in India, for example, there is Passion for Good in Amsterdam, which incubates a lot of startups. 
there isn't any hub in india to push these women these startups forward and i think that's a gap that we're missing here how do you think we can make voices of people here right from workers factory managers to young entrepreneurs heard so the common message here is a sense of not being listened to brands in lavenia's experience are often designing worker wellbeing programs for factory workers without properly uh, actually talking to the workers themselves or anyone who understands the context. And she also references the lack of innovation hubs in India. There's not enough incubating support for startups working right where the clothes are being made in sustainability. So how can workers and factory managers and young entrepreneurs get heard in these situations? The starting point that she makes is so is so good. I often look at the committees for big brands who are in charge of sourcing and remediation and sustainability and sourcing and ethics and stuff like that. And they are all white people based in the head office. I looked at a certain Swedish brand recently and they were all blonde white people who worked in the head office. And it's really not acceptable to parachute in these pilot schemes which are not fit for purpose and and not built from the economies and the cultures that they're seeking to use again it's it's a box tick exercise and it's it's clear that they're not properly invested in the communities i have seen ones that are really good though and i've seen one that comes to mind which is about embroidery in india so for a lot of the luxury firms the only way that they can really add value at this stage is by embroidering the bejesus out of everything like that's why there is so much like really highly decorated stuff out there because you can charge a lot of money for it and there's a particular embroidery skill in I think it's in Delhi where only men were entrusted with this skill for many many years is. is it not cashmere yeah it's I think it's the cashmere it's um yeah, and, and the men could do it, so it was high value, that kind of yeah, chain exactly. embroidery. Yeah, yeah chain embroidery. And it's really, really... Like, you have to do it, like, you basically reverse... The, if, if you think of a sampler, the top is away from you. So you have to do it by feel and instinct because you can't see what you're embroidering into. It's unbelievable. So there is a project which was based in Delhi for a long, long time and then decided to bring a group of women into to train them up. And they have to bring the women into the embroidery centre from communities that they've never left before. So it's been a big kind of negotiation and it's been using like, you know, working with female village elders in this particular... It's an incredible project. It's really kind of culturally interesting. And guess what? The women are really good at the embroidery. Anyway, anyway, it's those kind of projects that take a long time to set up, are a long time in the making and are properly evaluated. But that's a big investment of time that you can't... Again, it's a problem with fast fashion is it's, you're often not investing that time. The, these projects could be 10 years, a decade in the making. What we were really shocked to hear about was the dowry system where in South India, girls were taken at 14, basically put into bonded labour with factory bosses working in incredibly harsh conditions for three years and then coming out at 17, lump sum paid to their families, not to them, and married off. And the idea that me or I could buy something for my family, which was made by somebody who is kept in effective slavery, is an unbearable thought. And I don't know how, you know, as a consumer, I can avoid that because I can't see down that far into the supply chain. But back to the UK, one of the big shocks of our inquiry was that we have 10,000 textile workers in Leicester who are 
being systematically underpaid and earning as little as £3.50 an hour. For me, made in England, made in the UK was always a mark of, of a hallmark of quality, of uh, trust. And what we're seeing with some of the new online brands, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Boohoo and Misguided, is um, a deliberate onshoring because it's faster fashion turnarounds, but then a deliberate blind eye to the abuses in, in the factory system. Boohoo.com and Misguided were asked to respond to the allegation that they turn a deliberate blind eye to abusive practices in the factory system and that their garments are being made in UK factories where workers are exploited and paid illegally low wages. Misguided told us, We simply don't recognise this characterisation. Misguided is playing an important role in raising standards, onshoring production to the UK and keeping traditional textile skills alive. We've significantly rationalised our UK supply base over the last 12 months, allowing us to have best-in-class relationships with our manufacturers. That in itself is helping drive standards and efficiencies to put UK textile manufacturing in a position to thrive. But we all recognise this can't be at any cost. Our tighter supply chain allows us to be forensic about issues such as unauthorised subcontracting and poor employment practices. We do not tolerate that. We expect all our suppliers, without exception, to abide by the law. We're active members of the Ethical Trading Initiative and the Gang Masters and Labour Abuse Authority and playing an extremely active role in Leicester in enforcing the highest standards. There's full details of our work to drive standards at misguided.co.uk slash CSR. And boohoo.com told us, We believe that a happy, motivated and engaged team is good for our people, good for our customers and good for business, which is why we are committed to investing in our own team and we expect the same from our suppliers. We are committed to ensuring that all the garment workers producing the clothes we sell are paid at least the minimum wage and we will not work with suppliers who do not comply with this commitment. We have an in-house compliance team whose job is to ensure that our products are made in factories which comply with all legal and regulatory requirements relating to minimum wage and working conditions. Some key steps that we have taken include our UK suppliers receiving regular unannounced audits, improved payment terms for our UK manufacturers, with these UK manufacturers now being paid within 14 days of their invoice, ensuring they have improved cash flow to help manage their own operations, and an electronic payroll system that gives us visibility on payment practices and contracted hours across around 90% of our supply base. We have also set up an office in Leicester where members of our sourcing and compliance team are permanently located so that they can work closely with our supply base in Leicester to both audit our suppliers and also provide guidance and support for continual improvement. With some closing comments for this podcast, here's Lucy Siegel. I still think that what we actually perpetrate in the global fashion industry is a form of slavery. I think there have been a lot of inroads into child labour and I think that that is really kind of interesting. We knew who the enemy was. We went straight for it. We've used everything at our disposal to tackle it because 
that was our mission and we need to do the same when it comes to sustainability we need to stop this kind of collusion with brands that don't have our interests at heart we need to take a really clear line on this I almost think and a lot of people have said this to me that it's like following the anti-apartheid model you know there are instances in history when we have fixed these great great injustices together and collectively and I think that's really important thing to remember that this can be done but we need to know who the enemy is and we need to throw everything we can at them and I would finally say I've been to Bangladesh many times and I've seen good things as well as bad things and one of the people that I met there who I'm still in contact with Bihar was actually in the Rana Plaza disaster and escaped because she was under a table for nine hours and her colleagues died around her she had to keep working She has two daughters to support and she was fixed up with a placement in the north of the country where she could go and her daughters could stay with her mother. And she started working for a fair trade facility. And what she said to me about that was not only did she have regular hours and not only was she paid for those hours so that she could actually organise her life, but she said to me, I've learned to make a whole garment. I feel like I'm a tailor. When she was in Rana Plaza, she was just doing like one seam, one pocket seam, day in, day out. And now she feels like her career has developed and she is now in the fashion industry before she wasn't. That was such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to my panel and to Jonas from Global Fashion Agenda and, of course, to all the Guardian supporters. And if you'd like to email us with your thoughts about what we should tackle, you can do that at weneedtotalkaboutattheguardian.com. I'm Lee Glendinning and We Need to Talk About the Impact of Our Fashion Addiction was produced by Stuart Silver. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 